There's an old Yiddish saying that goes like this. He sits in honey and calls it horseradish. How would you describe your own life? How would you call our nation horseradish or honey? In a recent article, Princeton theology professor Ellen Cherry suggests that we who live in North America enjoy unprecedented wealth and prosperity, and yet there is this kind of restless alienation, a vague, angry dissatisfaction with life. Many in our land of plenty and freedom experience something we might name a spiritual void. Last week, I was at the Amon family reunion, and one morning while I was sipping my coffee, I heard my two great nephews, Christopher and Joel, ages 13 and 14, discussing the recent presidential debates. Christopher has lived in the Philippines since he finished the first grade, and yet he was totally caught up on American politics. And I was a bit embarrassed as I listened to these teenage boys who were more engaged in the political process years before they reached voting age than I was. And then just a few days after that, I was seated at a discussion group around a dinner table and some women brought up some recent events in the news that had great consequence, especially for racial injustice. And I, I had to confess that I didn't know what they were talking about because, well, sometimes I go for days without looking at the news because it tastes like horseradish and I want honey, right? Well, this can also be true on a more personal level. On paper, everything can look great in our lives. We enjoy better than average education, moderately good health, enough money to feed our families, and we have friends who care about us. And yet inside, we might just be feeling stuck, if not something even more serious called anxiety or depression. I have some family friends in another state. You wouldn't know them, but you might recognize them as the kind of couple who could appear on the front cover of a fashion magazine. Both of them are excelling in their careers and they find their work deeply satisfying. They have two adorable children, ages one and three, and they are excellent parents. And at least once a year, if not twice, sometimes three times, they take a lavish vacation. And every Sunday they're in church and they participate in a weekly church small group. But he struggles with depression. He wonders if his dad ever really loved him. And sometimes he's not quite sure he has the capacity to love his wife. On more than one occasion, he has fallen for someone else at the office, and his wife feels fragile and afraid, wondering if she's good enough for him and if this marriage will survive. Would you call what the two of them have horseradish or honey? Today's scripture, the one that we read from Romans, it names this very tension that we experience in life. Paul writes a letter to the Christian people in the city of Rome, and he describes in this letter how human beings sometimes get stuck. Paul explains that all of us are children of Adam. Every person from Adam to Moses to the current day has in one way or another made a mess of our lives. 
And Paul describes this human ability to make a mess of our lives? Sin. This sin, he says, seems to have its own power, its own domination, its own pervasive force. But Paul also claims that we have another power in our lives, another force that dominates, and this force comes to us from Jesus as a complete and utter gift. It is far more abundant than the power of sin. It dominates even more so than that other force, and Paul calls this force grace. The power of sin, he says, is outdone in our lives by the power of grace. What do you suppose Paul means by that word, grace? Now, if I say the word disgrace, we all say, ooh, we know what that means. It's awful. It's being caught doing something terrible. It's a feeling of shame. It's disappointing someone we deeply love. It's who we are on our very worst day, a disgrace. And if I say the word graceful, we all know what that is. It's a beautiful ballerina leaping effortlessly across the stage. It's an eagle soaring on the wind. It's a friend writing a beautiful note and dropping it in the mail to cheer you up. And you think, oh, what gracefulness she has. Graceful is that beauty effortlessly delivered so that it feels like the action and the person are not separate. Have you ever been at a dinner table when someone said, who's going to say grace? Or have you ever said to someone rather casually, gracias? We seem to know that grace has something to do with saying thank you for the good that comes our way completely undeserved. But what is grace? Kathleen Norris, in her book Amazing Grace, defines grace like this. She says that one day she was at the airport she was getting in the queue to get on the airplane and there was another couple getting on the airplane who had an infant daughter traveling with them and the baby was staring at the faces of the other passengers as they lined up to board the plane and as soon as the infant could catch another human being's gaze the baby's face would just light up with delight and it didn't matter if the other passenger was a hundred years old or five years old if they were beautiful or unattractive, if they were cranky or if they were squealing and giggling with delight, whatever face the infant captured, it just beamed. And Kathleen Norris says that's how it is with God, who is always looking into our face and just waiting for us to look back. And God loves it when we look back. God delights in our face. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that beauty without grace is like the hook without the bait. We need grace. We need more than what looks lovely. We need to know that we are deeply loved just as we are without any pretense or any preconditions. God persists in loving us no matter what. God's love is poured out on us even when we don't seek it, even if we can't find it, God's love finds us. If we could prevent God from loving us, then it would be we in charge of the universe. But God wins, 
God's love always wins. And so I was curious to see how often the word grace appears in the New Testament between the books of Matthew and Revelation. And so I did a quick word search on the English word grace, and I was startled to realize that it almost never appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, a total of eight times in all four Gospels, while Paul uses it 22 times in the one book to the Romans and opens almost every letter he writes with grace and peace to you and closes grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. The word that Paul uses is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, the Greek word for grace. But here's the curious thing to me. The word charis, which Paul uses so liberally, does appear in the Gospel of Luke, but it is not translated into our English Bibles using that word. Let me give you an example. In the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, I'm sorry, in the Sermon on the Plain, same sermon, different Gospel, in Luke, when Jesus says, if you love those, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And Jesus goes on to say, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. New Testament scholar Fred Craddock says that the word for credit in Greek is charis, or grace. And so imagine if it read like this, what grace is it to you if you love those who love you? And what grace is it to you if you lend to those who can pay you back? And what grace is it to you if you are kind to those who are always doing kind things back to you? Grace, you see, true grace. It's not just a happy feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling of being loved. Grace is an invitation to live a new life, or as Paul puts it in today's reading that Breck so beautifully read for us, in that last line, Paul says, we too might walk in newness of life. A few weeks ago, 36 of us from the congregation traveled to Israel to learn about the cradle of our faith. Oh yes, we saw where Jesus walked and where the kings and the prophets of the Old Testament trod through the desert in search of God. But while we were there, it was impossible to not notice the current situation, the turmoil and the despair of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. There were moments on the trip, just moments that just popped up when a local person would say something and you could cut the tension with a knife because you could sense that both the Israelis and the Palestinians carry within them this deep feeling of we have been wronged. And it is a feeling that is undeniable. And so after we got back to the States, I was kind of attuned to that political and social situation. And I noticed a story on the news about a wedding that was taking place in Palestine on the West Bank. It was a group of Palestinians, a Palestinian bride and groom, and they were having a lavish wedding reception and they had invited so many of their friends in the community. 
about midnight, the wedding reception was really fired up. The music was blaring, the pita and the hummus were being passed, everyone was having a delightful time, and all of a sudden, some friends who had been invited to the wedding but had to arrive late showed up, and they were Orthodox Jews wearing skull caps and wearing side curls, undeniably. From those whom Palestinians usually think of as the enemy. But they came into the wedding and they hugged and kissed the bride and the groom and they joined in the dancing and the Arab Palestinians raised the Jewish Israeli guest up on their shoulders and they danced and they sang and they reveled and they celebrated in joy. What would you call that? Some people called it wrong. Someone who was a guest at the wedding filmed this moment of beauty and they posted it on YouTube and the groom's father had to go into hiding and resign from his position in the Ministry of Education. Is love only earned, only metered out to those who deserve it or can it ever come as a lavish and undeserved gift, does God's love for us, God's grace for us sinners, mean that we have the power to love those who quote unquote do not deserve it? My classmate Serene Jones has a new book out. She's a disciple pastor, she's the president of Union Seminary, and her book is titled Call It Grace. You could think of it as a book of theology, but more aptly, you might think of it as a spiritual memoir. She tells about her mother's diagnosis with a rare and severe neurological disease that robbed her of her mobility and of her emotional availability. As mom's dementia advanced, mom confessed to dad that years ago, she had had a long affair. She said to her husband, who had been both a theologian and a seminary president, I don't love you. I never did. I loved him. And her husband took care of her day after day, week after week, year after year. Despite her bitterness, he sat by her bedside for hours, compassionately and tenderly caring for her every need until she took her final breath and Serene writes about her dad, I never witnessed a human being enact mercy of this magnitude towards someone who had unrepentantly harmed him and kept doing so. It was compassion on steroids. What would you call that? It's hard enough to believe that God could love us, but to experience God's love flowing through us, that seems like pure grace, God's grace. It is not what lets us off the hook for being human. God's grace is what claims us because we are human and empowers us to love as God loves. It is the ability, you might say, to sit in horseradish and taste honey. <laughs>